Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Bible and Me podcast. This episode is hosted by Nigel Watts and our guest today is David Arthur, the CEO of Precept Ministries International. The Bible and Me podcast is a series of exciting conversations with men and women of faith sharing how the Bible has impacted their lives. Well, I am really pleased to be able to welcome David Arthur to the Precept Ministries UK Bible and Me podcast. David is married to Margaret. Uh, they have three daughters, Jesse, Abigail and Anne. And I know that one of your daughters is married. David, I think we had a plan some time ago, didn't we? <laughs> it's not working out. We were going to hook our daughters and sons together and have it all taken care of. Yeah, we were all going to do it in one day, weren't we? So yeah. Uh, so that didn't happen. But you've got three lovely daughters. Um, David is the Chief Executive Officer of Precept Ministries International, uh, a ministry which ministers in 180 countries and disciples countless hundreds of thousands, literally, of people around the world. David uh, understood the importance of studying the Bible at a young age under the spiritual leadership of his parents, Jack and Kay Arthur. Uh, prior to his role at Precept, David worked in the business world, uh, with IBM and small businesses. And starting in 1999, David uh, worked several years uh, as a pastor in both Presbyterian Church of America and the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Just before coming to Precept, he was vice president of an organization called Generous Giving, working with pastors and uh, givers. David holds uh, degrees in organizational management and theological study. So David, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I wish I was sitting with you having a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now it may seem, David, a redundant question, uh, given that your parents are Jack and Kay Arthur. But I know that there are no guarantees that kids or pastors or ministry leaders will be Christians. Um, so here's my first question. When and how um, and why are you a follower of Jesus? How did that happen for you? Uh, well, you know, uh, not to go way back in time, but before the foundations of this world, um, he set his love upon me. <laughs> so yeah, he chose me before I had done anything good or bad. Um, and uh, just like uh, just like he teaches us in, in, in the scriptures. But the journey as far as um, as I can recall was, you know, growing up, uh, we have a 32-acre campus here. It was originally a chicken farm uh, that mom and dad bought in 1970 uh, to really start a youth ministry for teenagers. And so we cleaned out the chicken barns and turned them into, you know, dormitories and classrooms and softball field and, and creek and just a wonderful place uh, to grow up. And so I was surrounded, as you can imagine, uh, I was three years old in 1970, so I was surrounded with uh, with godly men and women in ministry and great examples and um, just lovely experiences with brothers and sisters around the country, around the world, actually. And it was about age 14. Uh, we were in a um, at our annual uh, what we call boot camp. It's a, a teenager conference. It's uh, 10 days long. Back then, it was two weeks long. And it's uh, designed to ground and establish teenagers in God's word um, every day, studying, learning how to study, studying together, playing together, of course. Uh, and so I had, you know, obviously grown up in this and was around as one of the little brats running around uh, for many years. And then I, you know, grew old enough to, to participate uh, beginning at age 13 for me at the time. But this was when I was age 14 and um, Al Whittinghill was the speaker, and uh, to be honest, I couldn't tell you his outline uh, or his compelling points. I do remember, uh, I think he talked about heaven and hell, so um, I can imagine there was some, you know, some some pretty serious questions put before me, um, but just to be blunt, um, it was while he was praying and uh, doing the thing you're not supposed to do, uh, which is open your eyes. Uh, I, I did. I opened my eyes and I watched him pray. And it wasn't like he was some charismatic, fire-breathing prayer. It was, uh, as the Bible teaches, it was the veil was dropped uh, from my eyes. And I saw and, and realized that he was talking to God. Um, and uh, and. And just that, at that very moment, I, I realized all the teaching that I had up to that point 
um, all of a sudden found its target. It, it, it landed uh, in my heart, spiritually speaking, and I was immediately aware that I did not know this God whom Al was speaking to. And just great conviction came over me, um, and uh, I began to weep. And, of course, um, some of the staff noticed and began to wonder, what's wrong with David? Um, um, and so they called mom and dad. They weren't even there. They were up on – they live on the property but up on the hillside. And so they, they called mom and dad down and said, you know, something's going on with David. You need to get down here. And, and um, you know, it was at that point, you know, I was weeping so hard I couldn't talk. Couldn't, you know, couldn't really enunciate anything until mom and dad came down. And over the next hour, I went from the kingdom of light. I mean, excuse me, I went from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It was, uh, it's kind of like the Pilgrim's Progress scene where Christian uh, finally understands the truth of the gospel. And the weight drops from his shoulders. Now, you know, you can imagine a 14-year-old shouldn't have that much weight on his shoulders, right? He hadn't been around long enough to, 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 to amass that kind of weight. But there was a weight on me that I felt come off. And we have a, a, a circle, a paved circle around the, the, the ministry here. It's a, it's a quarter mile. And, um, and I began to just run um, around this circle, just praising God for the first time in my life, actually talking to him and, and listening to him. Um, and the reality was just overwhelming. And I remember I just ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And, and Nigel, I'm still running. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, it's, I mean, gosh, that's been, I'm 50 years old. It's been a long time. And it's still, I still feel and understand that freedom. And so one of the passages of scripture that, that I later came across that really captured uh, what that experience was is in Psalm uh, 119, one of, the, one of the greatest psalms. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite because it's all about God's word. And, and the author of this psalm is passionate about God's word, loves God's word. And uh, well, in there, and, and, he, and he, just, he, he basically takes the Hebrew alphabet and breaks it up into paragraphs. And so let's start with the beginning letter of the alphabet, Aleph, and let's work our way you know, all the way to the end. And with each letter, let me tell you what God's word means to me. And it's in the, in the Dalit section, or we, you know, like our D. Uh, um, and he, he uses this word debak in the Hebrew. It means to cling. Uh, to hold on to. He talks about his relationship with God's word as one of clinging to it. Uh, and in Psalm 119.32, he says, I run in the paths of your commands. Um, not meander, not drift, not stroll, not cruise. Um, I run in the path of your commands. And, and he says in the second half of that verse, for you have set my heart free. Um, and I love the imagery in the Hebrew. It's literally, you have you have enlarged my heart. You have made my heart even bigger, uh, more capacity. And uh, and Nigel, today, even as um, even as I lead this organization and pastoring churches, I am not at all bored with the path. Um, it is still invigorates me, still excites me, and um, and so I, the reason why I follow Jesus is because he he reached down and snatched me, uh, and 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 replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and um, and he is my life. He doesn't. I didn't add Jesus to my life uh, that night. He replaced my life. Life with it off, um, and so I'm just as the author of Hebrews says, I'm I'm running the race that's marked out before me with my eyes fixed on Jesus. Um, so that's yeah, that's I guess that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And how how would you say your faith grew from that point in, in your teenage years? Um, we'll talk about you know adult years a little bit, um, but in your teenage years, how did that grow? Yeah, so um, immediately I went from Wanting to spend my my summers, um, you know, at the pool uh, with my buddies or at the beach with my friends, um, I asked my parents every single summer, "Can I do a missions trip?" Um, and so while all my other while my friends are 
are off being lifeguards or, you know, or going to soccer camps or whatever. I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in places like Romania and Germany and the Bahamas. I know that wasn't, that wasn't too rough, but uh, it was kind of nice actually uh, with Camp Crusade. But I went with, I would just, I started spending my time to where ultimately the, the summer between my junior and senior in high school, I was actually 18. So I was a little bit old for my grade. And I went to pack trucks for a smug a Bible smuggling organization um, in uh, that was based out of Vienna, Austria. It's a European mis- mission, and I went over there just to to work the printing press and to pack the trucks that smuggle the Bibles in. And through an incredible set of circumstances, um, I was able to go in by myself. Um, imagine that, 18 years old, from Vienna, Austria, all the way to Bucharest, Romania. Um, and that, this, listen, uh, your readers need to know, listeners need to know, there was no freeways back then. This was, um, there was no GPSs, there was no cell phones. Um, and, uh, and that summer I spent, uh, in Romania, um, uh, ministering alongside the preset people, uh, doing illegal preset meetings in that communist countries before Romania, uh, uh, became a free country. And, uh, so it, it's like, God knew that uh, my summers needed to be dedicated to really preparing me for what he had in store, which I didn't know. Um, all along, I thought I was going to be a businessman and uh, that business was my my um, my calling. Um, but what I didn't know, God was preparing me. And so my faith grew. Um, and what I love about Precept is, is it's uh, mom and dad never pressured me. Never said, you need to pray this prayer. You need to walk this aisle. You need to make this commitment. They've never pressured me. And even in my in my journey with God and his word, it's never been, you need to memorize this. You need to, you know, fill out this uh, specific, specific um, you know, doctrinal thing. They just said, go study God's word. They taught me how to do it. And um, so I've literally been doing inductive Bible study since the beginning of my journey. How wonderful is that? And we, we know we have many people, many Christians here in the UK that have been going to church for years, mm-hmm. and uh, and they don't know how to study. They don't know how to study the Bible. So you've been, in a sense, tremendously privileged to to you know the first thing becoming a believer. You're given the tools to to study God's word, and and obviously our heart over here is to to give people those tools because they're desperate. They are desperate for the tools to study His word. Now you trained. Um, uh, in theological seminary and served at a church in Chattanooga for five years. Um, how would how would you describe your time as a pastor? <laughs> well, uh, the, uh, the the funny thing is, I went to seminary not to become a pastor. Um, I actually went to seminary to um, mom and dad were at that time even talking to me about. Uh, taking the baton of leadership. Uh, this is way back in the '90s, and preparing me. And and, uh, and I said, you know, what I would really love before I grab a hold of that baton, because I know it's a bear when I get a hold of it. I would love to get some some theological training. And um, and the Lord opened up a door at a, at a school called Reformed Theological Seminary uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, which is one of um, several campuses. Uh, it's, even though it has the word reformed in it, it's not a denominational um, seminary by any stretch of the means. Um, and so I went there uh, to study to be a better leader of precept. Um, uh, in seminary, I fell in love with the church. In seminary, God just made it very clear the church is my design to reach the world. Um, and so you need to serve her. What? So I, I thought at the time, and I, and I, I really did, did enjoy my, my stint. It was actually seven years with uh, Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church and then a one year with a church in, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, full-time. I'm actually still technically what they call a teaching elder um, in, that, in the PCA uh, here in America. But my time there really helped me understand what the church needs and what, uh, what she struggles with and what is it like to be a pastor what is it like to be a, a, a flock leader and to, to know that you're accountable for the people God has uh, in your church, your parish? And um, and so now my role today, I look back on it and I can see God totally preparing me, you know, because I want to serve pastors. And I know what a pastor, I mean, he's, he's having to fight off 
you know, false teaching and wolves, theologically speaking, coming at his flock all the time. Uh, and yet he needs to feed his flock and is, he's busy. He's got 14, 15 different roles he has to do, you know, as a pastor and as a counselor and as a business manager and as a community representative and, you know, a marriage and therapy guy. I mean, but you got to do, you know, burials. I mean, it's just, it's a, a hospital visit, tons of work. And now I understand. All right. So now if I want to help a pastor, to really get his flock in, engaged in God's word, I now understand his world better. Um, and so I think that for me, that was great. Now, I, I love teaching. It's what I live for. So that part of my job as a pastor was a blast. What I wasn't good at was the counseling. <laughs> um, you know, I was kind of like um, uh, that funny skit with, I, for, I always forget his name, uh, Bob Newhart, um, a funny skit he did years and years ago with, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. So I was a pretty lousy uh, counselor, I think. So, But, you know, um, you've reminded me there of um, Acts chapter 6, uh, the first few verses. And I'm going to read them, actually. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is Acts 6, verse 1 and, and on. The 12 summoned the full numbers of the disciples and said, Is it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to mm -hmm. serve at tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, mm -hmm. so it's interesting you saying there, um, talking about the many different roles of a pastor. But mm -hmm. I'm guessing, I've not been a pastor myself, but one of the roles is to identify, well, to talk about uh, the spiritual gifts and to, yeah. to, uh, uh, to encourage those, to equip those people so that they can fulfill their place in the body, which will, allow, yeah. which will allow you as the pastor to you know, minister the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, in America, it's uh, sadly the church has become uh, more like the corporate world than, than probably she should be. And so a pastor now finds himself um, doing more than just prayer and ministry and care. He now finds himself negotiating uh, real estate contracts and handling lawsuits and uh, building campaign fundraisers. And uh, and so there's a sense in which, um, you know, we look at you guys over in England, of course, it's nostalgic, uh, but we look at you across the pond and say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to sit in my little parish and my little cup of tea and, you know, my little Bible study and just be able to, I know it's not that way. Of course, we, we fantasize, you know, we Americans are like that, but there's a sense in which as a pastor, uh, you, the main thing it, a pastor has to be devoted to is making disciples in his community, and and that has to be centered and locked into the living, breathing Word of God. Um, and so, my passion is is to help pastors do that that part well, um, and to give them the tools and the training and the resources and the encouragement. Um, that they can raise up, you know, effective Bible study leaders in their congregation that can make disciples along with them in that ministry. So, yeah, big passion of mine. Yeah, wonderful. Now, you worked in an organization called Generous Giving just before coming to Precept. Tell us about your work um, with Generous Giving. What was the heart of that ministry? What was the purpose of the ministry? Um, and uh, how was your time with them? Yeah, so uh, Generous Giving uh, is a ministry started by one of my close friends, a guy named Daryl Heald. Uh, who today is actually all over the world uh, teaching the, the biblical message of generosity. So it was a nonprofit organization that didn't uh, solicit funds, didn't ask for money, nor did it distribute funds. So there was no transaction, financially speaking. It simply met with givers talking about what does the Bible have to say about giving. Um, and and it, the, the whole approach was not from a, a duty-bound, shamed-based, manipulative approach, but more of, wow, uh, it's, if it's more blessed to give than to receive, then there's blessing in giving. Um, you know, if you can't serve two masters, you got to serve God or money, there's freedom from bondage uh, to the wrong master in giving. Um, uh, if where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. Um, man, there is there's opportunity for people's hearts to be impacted by the work of the kingdom by simply giving uh, generously to those things. And so, uh, so that was the organization. They worked with givers. My role was to come alongside and work with pastors. 
Um, now, just to clarify, it was not to teach pastors techniques and how to get more money out of their congregation. Uh, very much opposite of that. My job was to talk and walk with pastors in their personal giving and their personal generosity. Uh, and uh, I don't know how it is uh, in, in your context, but in our context over here, um, pastors struggle in that area personally. Um, oftentimes it's because they feel they're underpaid and so they're sacrificing time. They're giving time and energy instead of resources. Well, Jesus didn't say where your time and energy goes, there your heart will follow. Jesus says where your treasure goes, there your heart will follow. And so we walked, I walked with a couple of years with pastors of just helping them see of literally giving money to the church out of the salaries, meager as they may be, back to the very thing that they're serving, um, they will find uh, a deeper uh, joy. They'll find uh, greater freedom from bondage. Um, and I saw amazing things happen. I actually was more blessed than I blessed others. I, I've got to know pastors that are doing this so well and amazing things are happening. So, and then I was also responsible for all their publications. So we, we hired a guy uh, uh, named Andy Stanley uh, over here to write a book um, we uh, worked with uh, Randy Alcorn and in uh, a book he wrote called The Treasure Principle, and and then I helped uh, um, uh, help put together a book um, uh, by Kelly Capick of, of God So Loved He Gave, uh, talking about the generous heart of our God, and then I served on uh, an edit committee that put together an entire study Bible called the Stewardship Study Bible, um, and pulling out text. Uh, what does the Bible say? So that was. That was my heart and passion there. The reason why I left, honestly, is because God called me back to Precept uh, to use my teaching gifts, um, which were struggling to be used in at generous giving. <laughs> okay, so so you are you are now um, the CEO of Precept Ministries International. Um, what is it like stepping into the shoes of your parents? That cannot be the easiest thing to do i'll talk to you i'll ask you another question about you know what's the day in the life of the ceo like but the first question is you know stepping into the shoes of your folks uh, who have uh, under under god seen the ministry grow ex exponentially around the world yeah so you can imagine and, and you've probably seen it and witnessed it uh, and i'm sure your listeners have as well where uh, just because somebody's related doesn't mean they're always the best successor. Um, and so even in my scenario, I have two brothers, um, and one of them uh, does not follow the Lord uh, at all. And the other one uh, is quite honestly struggling. Um, so, And they're both older than I am. So it's, um, it's not a – I did inherit this job. Let's say it that way. Um, in fact, uh, I was really sure um, – that when I discovered my gift of teaching, I was actually amazed. Whereas everybody around me said, no, that we totally expected that to happen. I, I did not. Um, I thought um, my passion was for building business um, and not teaching. And so it wasn't until I discovered it. Well, so I didn't inherit that gift from my parents, um, nor did I inherit this position. So, um, so when the board approached me, and asked me to be CEO, I was already on staff of Precept at the time as Vice President of Teaching and Training International. Um, and, um, and when they asked me to do it, I said, no, no, that's not who I am. Um, I'm a teacher and, uh, and passionate about that and the content uh, delivery of this ministry. And um, so they came back again. Uh, a couple months later and asked me again. And I again turned it down. And they said, this time what we'll do is we'll give you a right-hand man, an executive director to kind of run the operations of the ministry. Um, but we want you to lead the vision. We want you to lead the strategy, uh, the overall strategy, and obviously be in, responsible for the content of the mission. Um, and that's when I agreed uh, to do it. Now, we, we decided to take five years for that transition to happen. And mom and I and dad wanted to make this transition so well done that others would say, how did you do that? Give us some tips because man, that looks really good. Um, and so we did research. One of them, <laughs> one of them I called Franklin Graham, who's the son of the famous Billy Graham, the evangelist. And, uh, and I asked uh, Franklin, I said, so, so tell me about your journey. How did you make that transition? And 
Yeah, he gave me some great tips, really good tips. But one of them, uh, he said to me, well, David, he goes, you know, I just let dad do what he wants to do. And I, I started laughing. I said, you don't know my mother. Uh, she is a generator of ideas, uh, you know, a thousand a day. Um, I can't do that. You know, help me out. But we did. We talked to folks, and we set up some boundaries and some guidelines for us. Um, and so we don't disagree with each other in front of the staff. Um, we are always careful to respect each other uh, in meetings. My father's now passed, so it's just mom and I, but um, we're very intentional about that relationship and that dynamic. And uh, But I can tell you, I introduced one time Will Graham, which is Franklin Graham's son, who is now an evangelist, now runs the, the, Billy, Co the Billy Graham Training Center. Um, and I, when I introduced him, I said, you can imagine, he's got big shoes to fill. I mean, you know, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, now Will, he's got big shoes to fill. I said, as for me, I've got big high heels, <laughs> lady shoes to fill, <laughs> you know, and, and there is a sense in which my life is funny because I, I live in a, I live in a glass bowl and people automatically assume I'm going to be just like my mom and I'm going to teach like her and act like her and talk like her. And, and in some ways we're very similar in some ways we're very different. Um, and so having to hold that balance of, you know, of continuing the legacy, but also being who God made me to be is, is always, uh, I won't call it a challenge, but it's always an opportunity to, to, uh, to lean on the Lord and to, to be led by his spirit versus uh, expectations of others. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell, tell us about your work um, as a CEO. Um, I mean, what is a day in the life or a week in the life or a month in the life of a CEO? <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so because there are so, so many, there are so many facets to it. I'm sure, but yeah, but um, I don't know. Maybe communicate some of the heartbeat or the passion or the yeah, the, to give people an insight in, into into what you're doing. Yeah, as, as you can imagine, it's there's a ton of responsibility. So we have we have 58 physical offices around the world. Um, we have over 380 people on the payroll, um, with thousands more that are volunteers that are working full-time. So not just a volunteer says, hey, I'll help out every now and then, but actually full-time working volunteer, thousands of those. Um, uh, we have, you know, a, a $14 million budget uh, to, to operate by. Um, and we're, we're, we have uh, 470 some odd titles of, of Bible studies that we have from children, uh, that can just starting to read all the way to seminary level, graduate level uh, type study. So the responsibility is huge. Um, but when I think about my job, I think it in thirds. So one third of my job is teaching and writing, and um, and which is probably my my most passion is is around that area. Um, making sure that um, so I for every lesson of every precept course we do, I'll do a video. Uh, one-hour lecture based on that text, um, and I'm involved in all the writing of all the studies. Um, uh, we do it team, uh, team-wise here, um, and then uh, a third of my job is is fundraising, um, and so we have a staff that does fundraising. But I, I'll do. I actually will work with specific givers. There are certain types of real high-capacity givers that want to talk to the CEO, um, and so I'll spend my time. Uh, and, and what's the blast is, and I need to come see you soon, and Nigel, but what the blast is to take givers on a vision trip to see the work of precept around the world. So uh, I just got back from uh, Belarus uh, and the Ukraine. Uh, just before that, I was in Romania. Um, I'm headed to Brazil here in a few months. Um, and so taking givers uh, that are already investing in the ministry and showing them uh, and, and thanking them for what they've done. I really like that. That's, uh, um, I think that's what, why God had me go through generous giving. Cause I really now understand the, the heart of a high capacity giver is, is tricky. Um, you know, they, they often feel isolated and alone, manipulated, um, by ministries, uh, treated like an ATM machine. You know, if I just type in the right number, I'll get money out of you. Um, and so God used that time for me to really understand how to really serve givers and encourage them and give them get, I know this sounds backwards, but give them the privilege and the opportunity to use their gifting uh, to see the kingdom expand. So that's a joy. And then the last third of my job is uh, visionary. 
um, and strategic. And so, for example, um, I'm about to spend um, three days uh, with my board of directors and a consultant and some staff, and we're going to lay out the next three years of the ministry uh, globally. Um, and really love that. Um, uh, God tends to give me a vision that's beyond this year um, and has given me, um, seems to be giving me a way to communicate that in a way that's compelling to uh, to our board and to our, our key staff members. And so those three things kind of make up my life. Now, I would like to say, you know, it's the same thing every week and it's nice and neatly organized. It's not the case. Um, uh, for example, I'll be uh, starting tomorrow. I'll spend the next three days teaching um, 300 teenagers um, all day long uh, the 40-minute study we have on uh, breaking the bondage of fear. So we'll be studying what God's Word says about fear. So I won't be doing any fundraising or any visionary. I'll be teaching and and interacting and playing with <laughs> these teenagers. Um, you know, hundred of them. I mean, that that is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's, we're at capacity, so it'll be fun to see. And it's always a blast to reach the next generation. For me, I'm still a kid at heart, so I love, and I love challenging. Um, I love uh, pushing them and inspiring them, um, not entertaining, um, not just telling a bunch of jokes and cute stories. Uh, I mean, we will spend several hours together in God's Word, and there won't be, typically, there won't be anybody bored or asleep, uh, very engaged. We'll be asking questions of them. They'll be giving us uh, uh, answers. And so it's a very interactive dialogue uh, around God's word. So, yeah. So, you know, and then I'll, um, I'm, I spent all day yesterday in a contract negotiations on health insurance. Uh, you know, so um, it'll be uh, next week. I'll be meeting, as I said, you know, with a consultant and some and some board members and talking about strategy. Um, it's, quite, uh, it's quite varied. Then it's obviously very varied. It's very different. Yeah, it's very different. I'm putting together budgets right now. Um, you know, so it's it's which I like. I love the diversity of it. Um, um, but you know, my heart is. My heart is really full when I'm when I'm when I've got God's word, you know, opened up and I'm wrestling with it with someone else or a group of folks. That's that's really what lights my fire. Wonderful. I mean, you you will hear in your role of stories of um, and the places you travel, uh, seeing God doing amazing things in and through this ministry. So my question is this: Why do you think God is working so powerfully through precept? Why, why is that? his grace because <laughs> mm, we're not doing anything excellent it's not like we've had it figured out and god said oh there's a good player let me use precept i uh i really i totally get what paul means when he says that he's a broken vessel um and uh that he's a work in progress and uh by our weakness god's grace and power is manifested i i totally get that um here at precept because i see him working through us despite mistakes um and i've made some whoppers in my tenure here um um of just some you know i've had some big projects that i was really excited about and thought were going to be extremely successful that today are done um, failed. Um, and so there's, uh, so to, to see God still working through us is grace. Um, but I think God raised us up because of the importance of, and the power that there is when you just stick with God's word. Um, so precept is not a ministry that, that wants to regurgitate God's word. that wants to kind of lecture God's word. Uh, we're a ministry that's designed and shaped by God to get people to study it. Where study is a verb. An action, not a, I'm going to read somebody's study. Um, so you know, one of my favorite British theologians, John Stott, you know, it's not that I just, I'm going to read John Stott on everything. Uh, by the way, John Stott had some pretty interesting concepts on hell. I don't think I hold to. Um, so if I were to say, I just want to read John Stott and I'll be good, I would maybe miss some certain things. Or a, a different uh, a brilliant um, a British theologian, um, and he's got some amazing truths. And he's also got some areas where I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure yet. 
Um, Who was that you mentioned? I think that N.T. Wright. He's also under the uh, pen name of Tom Wright. Um, uh, Very respected, you know, great guy. But, you know, if you put N.T. Wright and John Piper and John Stott around a table, they're going to have a difference of opinions, right? So what Preset does is said, let's let's teach people how to actually read and study and understand God's word for themselves. Um, so that they go straight to the source uh, directly. Not that we don't want commentaries. We don't. It's not that we discourage other teachers. No, for heaven's sakes, we we think God's gifted uh, men and women by the Spirit to teach God's word. But we want to show folks how to get into God's word directly, and so that they're learning it for themselves uh, first and foremost. Yeah, wonderful. Now, um, you're a busy guy uh, working hard. But so, how do you relax? I know, I know you've got some, you've got some hobbies. I know uh, I know you like watching US football. Uh, I haven't got a clue about the not a clue about the score of US football, and you like hiking. But tell us about your motor because you love you love motorcycling, don't you? Yes, I. Uh, I'm, uh, some of my friends think I'm having a midlife crisis, uh, which in America that means you buy a, a, a shiny red sports car and you wear gold jewelry or something, you know, and slick your hair back. I don't have any hair, but slick your hair back. Yeah, for me, motorcycles um, is I, I have two of them. I have one that's designed uh, for, for kind of trips, so it's a big bike. Uh, it's a Suzuki V-Strom, and um, I've taken it uh, thousands and thousands of miles all over the country. Um, and then I have a, a, a KTM uh, dirt bike. It's a 350, but it's a, it's called a dual sport, so you can ride it on the road and off the road. And um, I just came back this summer from a phenomenal six-day off-road ride through the mountains of Colorado. And I'm talking, Nigel, 13,000, 14,000-foot peaks the bike was struggling to get up there. That's how high it was. I was struggling to breathe once I got up there. I was going to say, you need an oxygen mask. Yeah, yeah almost. And, uh, but just to see creation uh, and, and to see the world uh, not through a windshield and that, um, to smell and to feel the environment, there's just something beautiful for me about motorcycle. Plus, I have a helmet on. I always wear a helmet. And I don't have anybody talking to me. And so I've had some of the sweetest, precious conversations with God inside my helmet. Because, um, you know, for hours I'll be riding through the, the woods or, or, you know, or, or just beautiful landscape and, and be able to talk and, and listen. And um, uh, so, yes, I love and I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So um, I love adrenaline. So, you know, climbing hills, jumping it, uh, going through rivers. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit addicted to that, I have to admit. Well, it's it's wonderful to hear you you doing that because so often we can um, we can be driven and so driven that actually we we don't recognise that we can get burnt out and, and I know so many guys you you I'm sure you know this you've got friends who pastors and and they're actually they're burnt out and, and they're not refreshed yeah. and they're not taking the time out and they they perhaps they view taking time out as you know well I'm not serving I'm not I'm not you know encouraging the congregation but actually it's so important isn't it Type A you know go get him sort of guy it's difficult isn't it yeah yeah well i mean you know one of the one of the benefits of growing up in a ministry household is you get to see it from a different perspective um and uh, whereas my mom and dad are lovely devoted authentic genuine you see what you get folks um they were very much like a pioneers consumed with the ministry and um, and so I learned on quickly, I need to have a balance. And um, Eugene Peterson, uh, in, in one of his writings, talks about if you don't take a day off once a week, you're taking yourself far too seriously. And, and what I hear in there is, is it's the Sabbath principle in the scriptures of, listen, trust me. Trust me to, to provide for you so you don't need to go out on that seventh day and to pick up the manna. I'll provide. Trust me in that. In the fields, in the first fruits doctrine uh, of the Old Testament, if you give me the first fruits, now typically that's not how we give. We, well, let me give, and then if I've got some left over, then I'll give that to you, Lord. He had it the exact opposite. I want you to demonstrate your trust in me by giving to me first in faith, knowing that I'll give you the second and third and fourth fruits. Um, the same way with our time as, as, as ministry leaders, if we think the harder we work, the more ministry is going to get done, if we think that's the simple equation, then we will work ourselves to death. Yeah. 
But if we trust God and know that it's he, we can plant, right? We can do all that, but it's he that grows. It's, it's his responsibility to change hearts. It's his responsibility, honestly, to build his kingdom. It's not mine. Um, and I think that's why. And so for me, I have a real strict rule with, with our staff. I don't want you working on Sundays uh, unless there's a conference or some special deal. Um, and that means emails. Don't email each other on Sundays. Um, give it a break. And I've had to, I've had to, you know, discipline staff on that. Um, and sometimes I had to, you know, discipline upwards <laughs> um, and remind folks, listen, even if you are, if you're, if you have the freedom to do that uh, between you and the Lord, fine, don't hit the sin button until Monday morning <laughs> um, so that we can say to the staff, listen, we trust God. We're going to take off the Sabbath um, the, uh, for us the Sunday and, um, and rest and trust him. Okay, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to uh, put you in a situation. So it is a, not a believer um, that may have heard a little bit about the Bible. And the question that they ask you is, is why, why is the Bible important? You know, why should I, why should I read the Bible? Um, you know, I'm, I'm fine, I'm happy. What's, what's, so, what's the deal with the Bible? So <laughs> how would you answer that person? Great, yes. Um, that is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so if we believe, if we, can, if we can agree that there is a God, and, uh, and, and we agree to that. Yes, there is a God. And if I can show them in Scripture where God says this is his word, um, this is his revelation, this is, these are the things he has literally breathed out for us, uh, would you agree that to get to know that God, this would be a great path to get there? Um, and, and the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah, if, if, we, if we believe there is a God and that God's, and that the Scripture is God's Word, not man's ideas, man's opinions, but it literally is breathed out by God, and I would show them that in places like 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, um, and some other places, Hebrews chapter 1 and some other, and 1 Peter, I'd show them that, those passages. Well, then if we can agree that this is God's revelation of himself, then then the Bible now becomes very important because it's it's the way God says, here's how I want you to know me. Because if he wrote it and he preserved it and he has shared it with me, then that's the way he wants me to understand him. So it'd be the same way if you were to go to, remember in, in school, you have a class with a professor and they're very particular. Um, and so you take your first test and you fail it and you go, oh, what am I missing here? Uh, and so you schedule an appointment and your whole focus of the appointment is I want to understand the professor and what he or she's looking for so that I can score well on my exams, right? The same way with God. I want to really know God and understand him. So what do I need to do? And God says to us, I've given you, I've provided you my word. And if you will invest the time and energy, you will get to know me by my words, not other people's words. Um, and so I think that's a, a unique aspect of the Christian Bible is the, is the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us and for us. So that's why I think, you know, studying God's word is, is vital. In fact, uh, in there, I'd show them the, the, the last words of the great prophet and deliverer of Egypt, of Israel from Egypt, uh, Moses. Uh, and then this is in the very last thing he said in Deuteronomy, the last book he wrote, chapter 32, uh, around verse 44, he says, listen, I've, I have told you who God is. Uh, take to heart all these things. Teach them to your children. Cherish them. Be very careful to obey all these things that I have taught to you uh, over these past you know, years. Now, that would include Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When he's saying this, he is talking about the entire Bible at that point in time. And he tells them why. He, he knows he's about to die. He knows he's not going to go into the promised land. God's already told him that. He tells them why he wants them to take to heart these words. Verse 47, he says, for it is no empty word. It, in other words, it's not, uh, it, it's not a, a futile word. It's not a word that you can take, take it or not take it. He says this, indeed, it is your very life. Okay, wow. Okay, so, so that tells me that the Bible is extremely important. 
not so that I have information, not so that I can be smarter than others, not so that I can be judgmental and legalistic and that, but it's honestly so that I can have life that is truly life. Paul would say in, in 1 Timothy 6, that I, that I can truly know God for myself. Um, and I'm not telling you this theoretically. I'm telling this experientially. I know God. I know God because of my time in his word. Um, and I have been all over this planet, and I have seen people in places, in, in clay huts in Africa, in slums in Nigeria, all the way to um, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, in just that one continent. I've been in, in, in billionaire home, a billionaire's home, and I can tell you they both, the slum and the billionaire that I know by name, they know God because of their time in his word. So, it's, yeah, Asia been all over this world and I, and I'm telling you I have witnessed it um, this is not this not a theory <laughs> uh, that, is, that, is, that is fantastic where do, where do I sign up <laughs> no, but I mean, one of the issues that we struggle with in our is, is I mean you said right at the start you know if we accept mm -hmm. that there is a God and mm -hmm. we, right right from that very point there are many people in our country, our country, maybe yours right. too, that they don't accept as a God. They, they, right. they don't have any concept of who God is. And, and we, you know, certainly in, in our nation, I, I sense that we've gone away from our Christian roots, gone away from our Christian heritage. You know, mm -hmm. if, our, if our Christian heritage was a football, you know, we've taken this football, we've, we've kicked it into the Atlantic, you know. Right. And in a sense, we're in a post-Christian society rather right. than, uh, rather than uh, you know. And, and so... So, but I think, I think um, what you said there um, about getting to know him through the study of his word, and as you start to do that, I, uh, I'm going to ask you a minute, well, you, you've already said what your favorite Bible verse is. My, mine is 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, uh, Paul writing to Thessalonians saying that he, he thanks them that when they received the word of God, which they accepted, it, uh, they accepted it not as the word of man, right. but, but for what it really is. And then he goes right. on to say, the word of God, and then he ends that verse by saying, which is at work in you. I love that verse. And then it summarizes precept, because it's it's not the word of man, it's the word of God. And guess right. what? It performs a work. Fantastic. Yeah. So, okay, now this is a tough question. You're a Bible teacher. You, I'm sure you yeah. can teach from Revelation to Genesis or Genesis to Revelation. Um, do you have a favorite Bible book? And, you know, that may vary from time to time, I guess, depending on what you're preaching on. But is there one particular one you say, you know what, that's the book for me? Yeah, yeah. If I, yeah, I often think of if I were stranded on a, on a deserted island and, and they offered me one book of the Bible, which, which one would it be? Um, and uh, if, if I were stranded by myself, it definitely wouldn't be Song of Solomon. Um, that would just make me long for my wife. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, it would be the book of Romans. Um, for me, Romans, uh, in a close second is Hebrews, but Romans is a book that, um, quite honestly, it's what I cut my teeth on. Uh, it's the very first book I ever taught, uh, as a teacher. And I'm still today blown away. I just did a, a conference at the Billy Graham Cove Center. Uh, out of out of Romans chapter uh, uh, eight, and um, which I think is, I think Romans is the best book of the Bible. I think Romans six, seven, and eight is the best section of the Bible, and I think Romans eight is the jewel. Um, and it is, I, you know, and there's many people that I've heard, you know, would would agree with me. Chapter eight is one of those things you just can't get enough of. Um, it's, it's, it's so rich. And what I love about Romans chapter eight is, is, um, the whole book of Romans, by the way, he's saying this is righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith alone. He tells us that in chapter one, 16 and 17, uh, speaking of the gospel, it's by faith alone. He's actually quoting Habakkuk. Um, uh, which is just a, a, a phenomenal book as well. Um, but he's, he's, so he builds this case in the first three chapters. He says, let me tell you your need for this kind of righteousness. And it's a one word answer, sin. All have sinned. We're all in trouble. Everybody needs righteous, this kind of righteousness by faith alone. Then in chapters four and five, he tells us the way to that righteousness. And it's beautiful. It's through one man. 
And he just very clearly lays out Jesus Christ is the only way uh, to this faith. Uh, and then 6, 7, and 8, he tells us what does that life look like. Uh, or uh, so if we were to use one word, sin, the first section, salvation, the second section, then this third section, then 6, 7, 8 would be what we call sanctification, the, the life of a believer. Chapter 6, you're dead to sin. Chapter 7, you're dead to the law. But chapter 8, he stops talking about death, and he says, now you're alive. You're alive in the spirit. And all of a sudden, if you just mark the word spirit and every reference to him in chapter eight, you'll see it just jumps off the page, the role of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, so we learn in chapter eight, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We learn that we are secure in our adoption. Uh, and he talks to us about, you know, he adopted us and we can now cry out to him, Abba, Father. Um, and then he tells us there's no separation uh, from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Um, those three things, you put me on an island, I'll take it. That I could spend the rest of my life just digesting the book of Romans. Um, and uh, and then, of course, you, you, know, you move past that. You get 9, 10, 11, talks about the scope. Of our righteousness, there he talks about the sovereignty of God um, and Israel. If you want to know, does God have a plan for Israel? Read Romans chapters ten and eleven, and just read it. That's all you got to do. Just read it. Put away your commentaries and your theologies. Just read it and say, what does he say? Has God rejected Israel? And I'll I'll leave it as a mystery. You go check it out. Um, <laughs> Or you go read it for yourself. And then and then we get to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the last four chapters. And it's in whereas chapters one to eleven have been what we call doctrine. It's been truth. It's been the facts. Uh, there's hardly any instructions. It's just pure, this is who you are in this faith. Uh, chapters one to eleven. Then you get to chapter twelve, and he he turns on the spigot. And out of the spigot comes instruction after instruction after instruction. Um, and it all flows out of, now, in view of these mercies, the very first verse in chapter 12, in view of these mercies, present yourselves as, to God as living and holy sacrifices. Uh, and then the rest of the book is, what does that look like? And it talks about your relationships. It talks about your relationship to your government. It talks about um, uh, your relationship with Satan, in there, I love it. He, he says, uh, "We'll crush the head of our of our enemy." Uh, he tells us um, about weaker brothers, about you know what liberties can I have and what liberty should I actually put away for the sake of my brothers. Um, so it's it, it's a beautiful your gifts, your spiritual gifts. So yeah, Romans Romans is the book. Uh, I love it. For those that are listening that may have been inspired by what David has just said regarding the book of Romans, Preset Ministries has got uh, two or, well, I'm going to say three because we've got a, a series called the New Inductive Study Series, which will take you 13 weeks, about uh, 20 to 30 minutes a day uh, to go through the book of Romans. Uh, for those of you that want to go a little bit deeper, we've got another course called our precept upon precept study which is four separate courses actually and that, that's probably going to take you a couple of years i remember doing that uh, very shortly after coming into precept um and then there's the in and out series which is a sort of what we call pup light isn't it so so yeah. it's slightly less work than the precept upon precept so there may be some of you out there that are listening say you know what? i really need to get into romans um then there are three options for you in order to do that um David, being a Bible teacher, do you have a message that is on your heart? Uh, I know I know all good preachers and teachers, you know, can stand up at the moment's note and say, hey, you know, speak to these people about what's on your heart. But I know you've got the teens coming this weekend, which is what an amazing privilege that is to speak to 300 young people. Um, yeah. Fantastic. I wish I was there. Um, but is there a particular message that you would like to uh, give to? Sure. Folks? Sure. If, if, uh, I'll give you a second. If, if folks want to grab their Bible... Um, or just listen, but if you have a Bible, it's, it, it makes it even better when you can see. But, um, you know, it's this time of year around Christmas when we sing that beautiful song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? So you know the song probably. It's a very traditional, very good song. Uh, and, and honestly, when you think about that song, warm, fuzzy feelings come, right? Oh, yes, this is Christmas time and wonderful. Uh, but if you were to look at the context 
of the prophecy of Emmanuel, you would have to go to Isaiah chapter 7. So looking at Isaiah chapter 7, we find out uh, the story of a king named Ahaz, A-H-A-Z. And Ahaz is scared to death. We find out um, in verse 2 uh, that his heart is shaking like trees in the forest shake before a wind. Um, he is terribly afraid. Uh, and so the question is, is, why is he scared? Well, we find out in the text that there are several kings that are uniting together. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that the king of uh, um, Judah, I'm sorry, the king of uh, Assyria, his name is Rezin, Pekah, the king of Ramayah, the son of Ramayah, king of Israel, uh, and another one you're going to find out uh, shows up um, uh, with Ephraim. It shows up, and they're going to fight Ahaz. They've decided we're going to take out this nation of Judah. Now, so uh, so he is scared to death, and so God shows up in verse 3. Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet, by the way, go out to meet Ahaz, you and, this is, a, this is his son's name, Shir Yashub, it means a remnant shall return, a great name. Uh, go out with your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, say to Ahaz, here's your message, ready? Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. He explains, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. He's now nicknaming the, these two at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Um, and he says they've devised evil against you in verse 5, uh, and they want to come up. Look at verse 6. They want to go up against Judah and terrify it and conquer it and set up this guy named Tabeel. It's interesting. His name means good for nothing. Uh, as the king in the midst of it. Um, now, what's going on in the bigger narrative here, the bigger story is there has been a promise by God to to David and his throne will not be overthrown. And so if Tabeel shows up, whoever this guy is, he's not from the house of David. So there's a there's a, a threat. I love it. There's a threat from the from the arch enemy. I can knock out this covenant. Watch this. Um, and so the message from God through Isaiah to Ahaz is don't fear. Um, and so he says to him, look at the end of verse 9. He says to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, so he is, he's made a promise in spite of the fear. I've got your back. Don't worry. Here's what you need to do. You need to have faith. You need to stand in that faith firmly. You need to trust me. So, um, it's very interesting, Nigel. Verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, this, again through Isaiah. And there's no, there's nothing between verses 9 and 10 that says Ahaz was still scared or Ahaz said, I need some more. Or There's no request. There's no dialogue. God is, in verse 10 and verse 11, generously offering this sign. Look what he says. Ask a sign of the Lord of the Lord your God, and let it be as deep, let it be deep as Sheol, that's hell, or as high as heaven. Okay, so verse 11, uh, to say it another way, God says, listen, I've made a promise to you, and you can ask me for a sign. Um, uh, if our listeners ever heard the story of Gideon, um, God told Gideon to go do something crazy. Gideon said, I'm not quite sure I'm hearing from you. I'm going to ask for a sign. So I'm going to put a fleece out, and it will be wet in the morning or dry, vice versa. He does it twice, um, and, and that will be my sign. In other words, I need one more indicator. God is saying to Isaiah, you ask me anything. Here's your boundaries. You can go as deep as hell or as high as heaven. You ask me anything in that arena, and I'll give it to you. Okay, wow. That's, that's a very generous offer from God. So how does he respond? Uh, he says in verse 12, I will not ask, um, I will not put the Lord to the test. Um, very interesting response. 
Uh, here, he is scared to death because of the armies that are coming against him. God is saying, don't fear. Be quiet. Be calm. Uh, it will not happen. Stand firm in your faith. By the way, let me give you a bonus. Ask me for a sign. Oh, I often wonder if, if Ahaz was smart. He should have said, well, can you have the heads of king of these kings before me <laughs> on a platter? Uh, that would be a good sign. Um, and he says, no thanks. That's his answer. No thanks. I will not put the Lord to the test. Um, now, we got to ask ourselves, why does he respond that way? And this is, Nigel, this is what I love about the Bible. Uh, it is rich. It is multi-layered. Um, and so uh, a careful study of the scriptures would take you to 2 Kings chapter 16. Um, so let me turn there real quick. In 2 Kings 16, this is, Kings is the history book for the prophets. So if you're ever studying a prophet and you want to know the context, the historical context, you want to know what was going on. Uh, what's happening, go to Kings or Chronicles. Those are both uh, parallel books, and they will tell you the history of what's going on. So we get to 2 Kings chapter 16, and we find Ahaz here. And uh, we get the same story about Ahaz. He is scared to death. Um, and um, and so um, we, we get in verse um, uh, 7, it says, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, Pileazar. Um, I love that name. Um, he's the king of Assyria, Tiglath Pileazar. And, and, and this is Ahaz talking. I am your servant and your son. He's talking to the bad guy. Y'all, the king of Assyria is, is the bad guy. He's the big bad guy. I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Okay, so his request, even though God has been offering him, or there's there's a, an offer on the table from God, his request is let me ask the king that I can see, touch, and and read reports on in the newspapers about how big and nasty he is. Let me ask him to help. Here's how he does it. Look at verse 8. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Okay, so what has he just done? He has just taken God's money and paid off the big bad king of Assyria to provide him protection. That's why he, back in Isaiah chapter 7, says, I will not put the Lord to the test, because he is already taking care of his problem. So he thinks. So let's go back to Isaiah 7. Now that we know the backstory, this is how God responds. Verse 13. He said, Then hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Oh, okay. So remember back up in verse 11, he says, ask me for a sign. He turns it down. Now we find out in verse 14, well, you're going to get one. Even though you didn't ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Here it is. You ready? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Oh, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not yet come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Uh-oh. Did you read that? In verse 17, God says, I'm going to bring upon you the king of Assyria, Tiglath Pileazar, that we just read about in 2 Kings 16, where, where Ahaz has decided to reject God's promise and protection and decide to buy it with God's money. He says, I'm going to send him now, king of Assyria. But it's not in a good way. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly 
that is at this at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, verse 20, the Lord will shave. This is not good. With a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. The very guy that he has hired to protect him is now going to shave him. The head, the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And he goes on into further judgments. So what do we have? We have a man who has been who has been threatened by surrounding kings. We know this man is is though if you read more in Second Kings, you find out he's not behaving. He's actually pretty evil. He even sacrifices his son to a demonic god to get some kind of weird superstitious favor from him. Um, but we have a man who's operating somewhat in the covenant uh, relationship with God, where God says, I will keep on the throne. Here's all you got to do. Stand firm in your faith. Uh, my translation, believe me. Just trust me. And so what does he do? I can't trust a God I don't see, but I can trust a king whom I can pay off. And the ultimate result is that king will be the tool of judgment against Ahaz and the kingdom. How does he describe it? Um, he is described as Emmanuel. Um, if you were to go back, we don't have time now, but if you were to go back and look in, in chapter 8, if you keep reading the story, you get to verse 8, and it's it's a flood that's described that covers everything. And he says, O Emmanuel. Um, and so you have this idea of, of, of him having this opportunity um, to be, to be taken care of by God, and uh, and you know these verses. We, we we recite these around Christmas all the time. Um, and in chapter eight, he says um, d- in verse twelve, uh, "Do not." Uh, he, he said he warned him. For, I'm sorry, verse eleven warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, "Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him." You shall honor as holy. Let him be who you fear, and let him be your dread. In other words, fear God, not man. And I love verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Y'all, he has just described Luke 20, verse 18, the stumbling stone. It ends the story. We don't have time. The story ends up with Jesus being prophesied as a solution. So I'm going to talk to teenagers about what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of man? Um, Where are you going to get your protection? Is it going to be with the right friends, the right club, the right uh, team, uh, the right status group? Or are you going to place all your eggs in the basket of God and trust him uh, to be your provider and your protector? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, goodness me. And, and that studies is one of the, um, the studies that Precept has, hasn't it? The 40-minute studies that people yes. can use are great for people starting out uh, on this journey of inductive study. They're great for individual study. They're great for house groups as well. Um, Breaking Free from Fear is the name of the study. So David, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. Uh, The Lord bless you and bless the ministry. And um, thank you for listening to the program today. And God bless you listeners too. Thank you. You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at PreceptMinUK.